our passage for this morning, we're going to consider the child Jesus busy about his father's business. The child Jesus busy about his father's business and we're looking at Luke chapter 2 verse 40 through to 52, the end of the chapter. In our previous visit to Luke's Gospel, we saw a lot of law-keeping, a lot of law-keeping. For example, baby Jesus was circumcised after eight days were accomplished in compliance with the law. Also, as Mary's firstborn child, Jesus was holy to the Lord. Consequently, in compliance with God's law, Jesus was presented at the temple and most likely five shekels were paid by Mary and Joseph in order to redeem the one, get this now, five shekels were paid to redeem the one who in 33 years' time would redeem all he came to save with his own precious blood. That's something, isn't it? In today's passage, Jesus, now aged 12, is back in the temple and the occasion is the Passover feast which commemorated God's deliverance of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt about 1,500 years earlier. And their 12-year-old Jesus was there in the temple commemorating that deliverance that happened one and a half thousand years previously. That in itself is food for thought when you consider that the deliverance that 12-year-old Jesus was commemorating with his mother and Joseph at the temple was brought to the Jews all that long time ago by whom? Who delivered the Jews, the Israelites, out of captivity in Egypt? The answer is very easy. The triune God, Father, Son, emphasis on the Son there, and Holy Spirit. And even as an adult, the Lord Jesus Christ, he continued to observe the various feasts, including the Passover. You've noticed that, haven't you, when you've read the Gospels? And I don't know, I think about things like this and I trust you do as well. Jesus attending and observing, commemorating the various annual feasts. For example, the day before Jesus was crucified, Or let's put it another way, the day before the incarnate Son of God was crucified. It is written in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 and 18. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. Let me just say that last bit again. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. In fact, the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt that was commemorated each year even by Jesus, pointed to a far greater deliverance. The deliverance of Jews and Gentiles alike throughout all ages 
deliverance from captivity to sin. Satan, hell's destruction by the Lord Jesus Christ, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 is declared to be our Passover. So the Passover feast that Jesus attended as a little boy and as an adult pointed to the deliverance that he obtained for sinners at the cross. You can go back even further than the deliverance of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt to Abraham's time. Abraham was alive about 400 years before Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Triune God, delivered them, delivered the Jews out of captivity in Egypt. Go back 400 years or so to the time of Abraham and you'll see that the Son of God was there. He was there. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Sounds a bit weird to us, doesn't it? Why didn't Jesus say, before Abraham was, I was? He's saying something very special there. He is the great I am. He was, that was a declaration of his eternality, that he is God. There's plenty in the Bible that confirms the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you have every reason to boldly declare that the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith of the Son of God, who loved you and who gave himself for you. If you're someone who, by the grace of God, calls on the name of the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, you really ought to be able to hold your own in a conversation with people who deny your Saviour's divinity. When you get that knock on the door, you open it and it's the the, the people from the Watchtower Society, you really ought to be able to hold your own. Not that you have to. You can say, not today, thank you politely bid them farewell and close the door. But you should be able to speak to them and cut to the chase. They'll tell you how wonderful the weather is, but what a terrible world we're living in and we would readily agree with them on all these matters. But then when you, you know, you get down to business, what they're there for is to sow seeds of doubt in your mind about Jesus, about who he is, that he is God manifest in the flesh and you as a Christian ought to be able to find the verses and even to memorise those verses so that you are able to hold your own in a conversation with those who deny the divinity of Jesus. And there are those verses that clearly declare the divinity of Christ. I've already mentioned one Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. That's one of them, and there are others. But also, you should be able to find those many, many verses that declare the divinity of Christ um, implicitly, if not explicitly. For example, John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus said, 
I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. When looking at those words, and, and if you're thinking about what, uh, thinking about those words, the only reasonable conclusion that one can reach is that Jesus is God. Who else would say, I am the light of the world? God alone can say those words. The, 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 the angel Gabriel, the archangel Michael, they don't say such things. And anyone else who says those things is mad. Or, or, or delusional. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That in itself is a declaration of his divinity. As well as making much of the indisputable fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, it is equally important to appreciate, to celebrate and to proclaim that in the fullness of time, God was manifest in the flesh. That is something that has already been considered in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 where it was seen that Jesus really was brought forth or born of a woman and in today's passage we shall consider Jesus as a 12 year old boy. Let's have a look again at Luke chapter 2 verses 40 through to 42. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. <clears throat> now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. <clears throat> Back in verse 11 of chapter 2, the angel declared Jesus to be a saviour which is Christ the Lord. We spent quite a bit of time looking at that declaration that unto you is born this day in the city of David, David a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. We looked at that statement in detail. But here in verse 40, he is simply referred to as a child, as if to emphasise his humanity with regards to his body, we read that Jesus grew and also that he was filled with wisdom. That is, he was filled with the knowledge of God. Bearing in mind that Jesus was a sinless child, his growth in body and in soul was in no way marred or corrupted by sin like it is for us. All our thoughts are corrupted and twisted by sin. Everything about us is tainted by sin. But not so with 12-year-old Jesus. With the child Jesus, what can be seen is a perfect humanity developing perfectly in body and in spirit. Understand clearly that verse 40 is not speaking about Jesus in terms of of him being the infinitely wise and mighty God, even though he most certainly is. Rather, it speaks of the child Jesus who, in, who grew in body and in wisdom. As it is written in Philippians chapter 2 
verses 5 through to 7. And now these, the, the, the verses I'm going to quote now, you probably need to put that on your list of verses to learn, memorize. Very, very helpful verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why did he think it not robbery to be equal with God? Because he is God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. See what I mean? Such an important, um, such important verses of scripture there. Where the apostle Paul said, but made himself of no reputation. That speaks of the Son of God emptying himself. Not that he ever emptied himself of who he was and is and always will be, God. That's not what it means. The theologian John Valvoord explained that in the context of the incarnation, Christ did not empty himself of his deity, but of its outward manifestation He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The incarnation did not change the person and attributes of Christ in his divine nature, but added to it a complete human nature. In the gospel accounts, there are times when the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ was manifested, such as when he was transformed on a mountain and his face shone like the sun, and his raiment or his clothes, they were as bright as the light. That was a clear manifestation of his divinity. And even his first recorded miracle, when when Jesus turned the, the water into wine, we, be, we, we can read in there in uh, John chapter 2, that the, 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 the disciples beheld his uh, his glory there. What glory? His divine glory. Uh, when he changed the water into the wine. So there were times when the, the divine glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shone through, without a doubt. But also, Jesus really did become flesh with all its limitations. And that is what is in view in our passage, Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. According to the law, males became sons of the law at 12 years of age. We're back to the law again. And they were required to go to Jerusalem to observe various annual feasts, the Passover feast being one of them. In compliance with the law, Jesus attended, or rather he was brought to the Passover feast by his parents, Mary, his mother, and Joseph. And I suppose that gives you some idea of the piety of Mary and Joseph, that they actually bothered to bring him from um, from Nazareth to the Passover feast in compliance with the law. And he was 12 years old, so this was something that he was required to do by law but apparently it wasn't observed it wasn't strictly observed by the time um, that the Lord Jesus Christ was in the world but that is yet another example of Jesus fulfilling the law's demands 
that compliance with the law has already been seen in his circumcision as a baby. In fact, there was never a time when the law's demands were not met by the Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, his perfect and his sinless obedience to God's law is credited to the account of all who are trusting in him as their saviour from sin. They stand before a holy and righteous God, clothed not in their own filthy rags of self-righteousness, but rather in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, having been washed with his precious blood. You see the importance of all this obedience to the law, the circumcision, and Jesus, um, once he'd reached that age, 12 years of age, he became a son of the law, attending the Passover feast. As I, I think I said last Wednesday at the Bible study, Jesus did not do all of these things for his own good. He didn't set himself a challenge. He didn't say, well, I'll become flesh. I'll come into the world and see if I can, I can keep the law, my law as God. He came into the world. He was made flesh and he was perfectly obedient to the law from the manger to the, to the cross, if you like, for the benefit of all who are trusting in him. And they stand before God, clothed in his perfect righteousness. Let's have a look at verses 43 to 45. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey... And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. The days that were fulfilled in Jerusalem would have numbered seven days, after which all the people that Jesus were with was with headed back to Nazareth. Apparently, it doesn't say it in the in the in the text here, but it, uh, from what I've read. The women with young children set the pace at the front of the caravan and they were followed by the men. As for the older boys, they travelled with either the women, the men or even in their own little group. But So you've got the women and the little children setting the pace. Obviously it wouldn't have been a very quick pace. The men followed behind. The older boys, well, they either stayed with the women, the men or in their own group. As such, when Jesus remained in the temple, instead of heading back to Nazareth with the others, it may well have been a case of Joseph thinking that he was with Mary, and Mary, who was probably busy looking after all her other children, thinking that he was with Joseph. Also, the fact that it took a day for the absence of Jesus to come to light suggests that Mary and Joseph were not accustomed to watching him closely. Probably because he was obedient to them and unlikely to stray. Therefore, as can be seen in verse 44, they simply assumed that Jesus was somewhere in the company of returning pilgrims. Nothing more I can really say about that. 
Let's have a look at verses 46, 47. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Finally, after three days, they found Jesus. Those three days may have, not necessarily, but may have um, consisted of a day, uh, a day's journey from Jerusalem, then a day to get back to Jerusalem, and then another day looking for Jesus in Jerusalem. It doesn't have to be divided up that way, but that may well be what it was. And then finally they found him in the temple with the doctors of the law. Rather than play football or do whatever it was that boys of his age did back then, Jesus sat down with the teachers of the law as the Apostle Paul did, although the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, he was a religious Jew, maybe he did sit down at the feet of the doctors of the law when he was 12 as well, uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ appears to have been doing here. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and here in our passage we see 12-year-old Jesus with the doctors of the law. As the doctors taught others by asking questions and receiving questions from them, Jesus showed an astonishing or amazing depth of understanding and interest for a 12-year-old child. It's quite clear in verse 46 that as someone who was hearing the doctors and asking them questions, Jesus was there as a student and not as a teacher although the teaching would most certainly come later when, as a man, he taught multitudes of people. um, He taught them, saying to them, repent and believe the gospel. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably the greatest, not probably, it's uh, the greatest preaching you'll ever see, the greatest teaching you'll ever see. Matthew chapter 5 through to 7. The Lord Jesus Christ teaching his disciples. Undoubtedly, Jesus was the best teacher ever. Looking at verse 47, I venture to say that with the sinless and perfect understanding of Jesus, of what he had already learned from the law, even in 12 short years, his questions and his answers would no doubt have challenged those learned doctors of the law and probably made them feel most uncomfortable if for example anything was said about righteousness that is that a man is justified not through works of the law but by faith in the promised messiah i wonder if anything was said on that subject if it was they would no doubt have felt very uncomfortable listening to the questions of jesus Let's have a look at verses 48 and 49. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, 
How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? When finally the search party found Jesus, they were amazed. No doubt they were amazed to find him in the temple with the doctors of the law. Mary, who after three days must have been sick with worry, spoke to Jesus and what she said appears to have been a double rebuke, albeit a very gentle double rebuke. First of all, Mary said, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? But also she said, Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. I dare say those words proceeded from a mother who dearly loved her son. Far from feeling guilty or even doubly guilty after hearing his mother's gentle reproach, there is not even a hint of an apology in the reply that Jesus gave to her and for good reason. After all, Jesus had not done anything wrong. He never did do anything wrong, not once. What we see in verse 49 are the first words on record coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he said summed up his entire earthly ministry. He was always busy about his father's business, not Joseph's carpentry business, but rather the business of his heavenly father. Up until now, we've considered the development of the Lord Jesus Christ as a 12-year-old child. But now in verse 49, what can be seen proceeding from the mouth of that child is nothing less than a declaration of his divinity and in that he he called God his father. Verse 49. How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? The Jews did not use words like that. They never called God, referred to God as my father. Even if they did have some kind of understanding of God being the father of the children of Israel in a very general way. Jesus declared God to be his father. That was in itself a declaration of his divinity. Let's have a look at verse 50. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. You'd have to wonder how it was that Mary and Joseph did not understand what Jesus said. You could just move on to the next verse because it's a little bit tricky, isn't it? But I, I was wondering, how is it Mary and Joseph did not understand what Jesus was saying there? After all, going back 12 years... The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Listen, I know we forget things, and I, I forget I, I get I forget everything. But even so, I'm not entirely convinced that you would forget something like that. And looking at chapter 1, verse 30 to 32, the angel of Gabriel said to Mary, who was still a virgin at the time, let's have a look at that, chapter 1, 30 to 32. 
The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. But as I said, that was 12 years ago. I don't know, I, I, I cannot say this with any certainty at all. I don't really imagine that Mary had forgotten that visit from the angel Gabriel, especially as she was a virgin. I don't imagine that she had forgotten that she was a virgin when she conceived the Lord Jesus Christ, if I'm being honest with you, which I am. You'd have to wonder just how much Mary and Joseph really understood of what was said to them and how much they really knew their own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the understanding of the apostles of Jesus, they'd been with him for three years Their understanding was very limited indeed. They didn't really understand that Jesus must lay down his life. That becomes obvious in various Bible verses, such as Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 31 through to 34. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. They understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. What can be seen in the gospel accounts is that a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what it was that his heavenly father sent him to do was only given to people after he rose from the dead. He having completed his work of redemption. That's how God ordained it to be. We can speculate as to why. I mean, for example, you may well speculate that, well, if everyone knew more than what God had revealed at that time, Jesus would never have made it to the cross. He would have been uh, destroyed long before that. I don't know. But it is what it is. And the fuller understanding was hidden from people until after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. When you read that Jesus went down with them, to Nazareth, just this is a little side thought here, it's not that, it's not particularly relevant to what we're considering now, down to Nazareth, if you look at a map, I like looking at maps, 
I like to follow Paul on his missionary journeys and, and stuff like that. Nazareth is north of Jerusalem and yet we read there he went down with them to Nazareth from Jerusalem. It's all to do with altitude. Nazareth is much lower down in altitude to Jerusalem. So it doesn't matter if you're going north, south, east or west. It's to do with how high above sea level you are. That's all it is. You probably knew that anyway. It was uh, um, something that I learnt some time ago. Verse 51 dismisses any notion that anyone might entertain that Jesus rejected the authority of Mary and Joseph over him. Having remained at the temple instead of heading back to Nazareth with them and having declared them to them that he must be about his heavenly father's business. We see that Jesus was subject unto them. Jesus was not a disobedient child. Again, I can only emphasise that Jesus was born under the law and far from abolishing the law, he came to fulfil the law and he did so perfectly, sinlessly. And that included honouring his father and his mother in compliance with the fifth commandment. Last of all, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. The passage that has been considered this morning started with Jesus being referred to as a child and now the final verse reinforces the fact that when the Son of God was manifest in the flesh, he made himself of no reputation. Even though he never ceased to be God, the Son of God really did take upon himself the form of a man. And as can be seen, as a man, he increased in wisdom and stature. Stature can mean age. I've got that in my centre margin there. Stature can mean age. But to say that Jesus increased in age would be a statement of the obvious. Most likely, stature refers to his physical presence. Therefore, the intellectual, spiritual and physical development of Jesus progressed with age. And when you consider that unlike everyone else, he was without sin, that progress must have been perfect at every stage of his development. As we close, consider the following. In today's passage, we've seen that even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was about his father's business, his heavenly father's business. And even though his relationship to God is very different to yours and mine, if you're a Christian, in that he is the eternal son of God, there is nevertheless a lesson for us. Whatever your age, your first priority as a Christian is to be about your heavenly father's business. And this applies to children as well as adults who are trusting in Christ as their saviour. As Bishop Ryle said, he had a father in heaven and that this heavenly father's work demanded his first attention. The expression is one that ought to sink down deeply into the hearts of all Christ's people. It should supply them with a mark at which they should aim in daily life 
and a test by which they should try their habits and conversation. It should quicken them when they begin to be slothful. It should check them when they feel inclined to go back to the world. Are we about our Father's business? Are we walking in the steps of Jesus Christ? Such questions will often prove very humbling and make us ashamed of ourselves. But such questions are eminently useful to our souls. Never is a church in so healthy a condition as when its believing members aim high and strive strive in all things to be like Christ. That's not, a, that's not works there, but that's a very good bit of advice. To aim to be like Jesus there. We're not, we know we're different. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And as I hope I've emphasised, he never did sin. But even so, doesn't matter how old you are, you call on the name of Jesus, you profess him to be your saviour from sin. How does that translate into your daily life, like your daily life. The Lord Jesus Christ continued without ceasing to be about his father's business. And that culminated in him sacrificing himself at the cross about 20 years, yeah, 20 years later, when his father laid upon him the iniquity of all who would ever trust in him as their saviour from sin. Therefore, if you haven't already done so, dear people, repent, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen.